0: It really does come down to that. Either I am a complete psychopath, so a 20-year-old psychopath who is absolutely capable of manipulating every single person around her to rape and murder people for her, to, to you know, lead investigations astray. Either I'm that psychopath or I'm just a person who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and just happened to get brought into this investigation against my will by detectives who had a bad first instinct and didn't want to admit that they were wrong.
1: Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. So that was a pretty dramatic intro, but uh, this is a pretty, uh, pretty crazy, pretty dramatic story. So I thought that uh, it was one that uh, deserved a little more of something because it really gets to the heart of why people know this story. We're speaking with Amanda Knox this week. I'm sure many of you have heard her story in the past. Maybe you've heard somebody else tell it. Maybe you've been fortunate enough to hear her tell it in the past. Quite the story it is. And uh, I was just so pleased and so, uh, so grateful to speak with Amanda. She's such a busy person. I will mention it very, very briefly in a little bit of a a zinger, if you will, at uh, one part in this interview. But uh, it took over a year to, to finally find a time that worked for both of us because uh, she's just got a lot on her plate. She she does so much uh, for The Innocence Project, for her own podcast, and so many other things. But if you don't already know, she's going to give a brief look at, uh, at her story and, and why so many people are captivated by it. But just to add a little bit more context... In 2007, Amanda went for a year away in college in Perugia, Italy. She moved in with a British girl who was traveling to Italy for college, and she moved in with two uh, Italians. And she was there for five or six weeks. She had met a person, a, a young man that she started spending time with, that particular night, right right after Halloween, um, she was spending the night with, with this new boyfriend, came home the next morning, and the British roommate, Meredith Kircher, was found murdered in the apartment. And what comes after that is a media circus like none other. It was a, a kind of a sleepy town, if you will. These things don't happen a ton, definitely the... The brutal nature of everything doesn't, uh, it it started this, you know, media circus, but then uh, so much happened and Amanda was accused of of murdering Meredith and they, the police had came up with this big long thing about how it was, you know, this basically a sex murder night. It was just uh, something, something pretty outlandish. Uh, Italy is, is quite different so she spent almost a year in prison before she was even tried. Once she was tried she was found guilty and the reasons for that uh, are are way too long for us to even get into but a lot of it was just false things that were said about her and then also just the, you know, the, the media circus and the pressure that had built uh, led the police to I think come up with some things that uh, were hard to prove, but also hard to uh, to look away from and, and, I guess, not convict, if you will. So just a crazy, crazy story. So what all this comes down to is that she spent four years in prison for a murder she did not commit. Uh, she, she did get released through an appeal. She then came back to the United States, where she was then... Put back on trial in Italy, um, and she was convicted again. She didn't go back to Italy; she stayed here um, during that time. And uh, and then the Supreme Court of Italy finally looked at it once and for all and acquitted her of all the charges. So, quite a roller coaster. Four years in prison. The whole situation took over eight years. But what I wanted to talk to her about, and we talk, you know, a lot about this. I, I tried so hard, you know, not to make her just talk about only you know her her story because she's literally told it thousands upon thousands of times you know she was everything kind of ended for her in 2011 and she wrote a book and then you know everyone from from dateline to 2020 to a netflix special have been told about her uh, but uh, there's there's just so so much already covering that that uh, we do spend time with it because we're just you know we, we've got to if, you know if I, I have her on we've got to talk a little bit about that but I want to talk about some of the bigger pictures the Innocence Project I wanted to talk about you know her podcasts and what got her interested in in having something like that I want to talk to her about you know just what what's life like now what was it like to get famous for something that uh What's it so great to get famous for? It, it's gotta be a, a strange strange world and, and the things that she says says there is, is quite profound. So I know you're not here to listen to me ramble on. I, I'm just so thrilled to to have Amanda this week. Without further ado, here is Amanda Knox. I'm here today with Amanda Knox. Amanda, how are you?
0: I'm doing well. Uh thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining me. A tall task right out of the gate. Just introduce yourself.
0: Uh, My name is Amanda Knox. I am a writer and a public speaker and a podcaster. My podcast is Labyrinths.
1: Yeah, right behind you. Awesome, awesome. Um, I mean, there's so much to unpack, so much to cover. We we have a limited time. I think we could talk for for a a long time because I've watched a lot of podcasts that you've been in. I've read your book. I have so many different things. There's so many different things to talk about, but I think as much as I hate to do it, People who don't know your story, because, you know, when I've told some people that I'm interviewing you, there's been people that that don't. So if you would just have cliff notes, talk a little bit about that. And then what I'll do is ask you some specific questions based on kind of of your book.
0: Sure, absolutely. So um, I'm most notoriously known for having been accused of a murder that I didn't commit Um, It took place in 2007 while I was studying abroad in Perugia, Italy. One of my roommates was raped and murdered by a local burglar who broke into our home. And uh, the big legal case that followed from that uh, resulted from my arrest alongside my then boyfriend. And uh, we were tried over the course of eight years, four of which I spent in prison.
1: Yeah. And... You know, as a podcast host, I'm a I'm a sucker for for words, and and there's been several in your book, and then in the documentary that you you said that I just think is really uh, I guess kind of a a cool turn of phrase. In the book, you said you were done in by a gag gift and unfamiliarity with Italian plumbing. Say say what that means, because that sounds kind Uh of interesting to hear.
0: Yeah, I mean, so for the record, I wrote my memoir back in, let's see, it was, I wrote it over the course of 2012, and it was published in 2013. So this is while I was still on trial. I was freshly out of prison, and I was still processing my experience and trying to understand the big question that haunted me, which was, why? Why did this happen to me? Why was this still happening to me? Because I was still on trial. I was still going through all that process. And um, one of the things that people landed upon really early on in the case was um, and in fact this a, a lot of the case really rested upon character assassination so evaluations of my character was i the kind of person who would commit a heinous crime like what happened to my roommate meredith she was brutally brutally assaulted raped and stabbed to death and you know this is a crime that is typically uh Uh, done by a male. And in fact, there was all of this DNA at the crime scene that pointed to this local burglar. And there was no evidence of me in the room where Meredith was assaulted and killed. And so a lot of the prosecution's case really came down to like digging deep into little character details about me and either flat out you know, making them up or exaggerating them out of proportion. And the thing that you've brought up are two examples of things that the prosecution and especially the media really um, latched onto as a way to vilify me as a human being. So one of them was a little like pocket vibrator that a- my very good childhood friend from forever had given me as a gift, as like a going away gag gift for going to Italy. And I remember specifically she gave it to me and she was like, this is for you until you find your Italian stallion. And, you know, we're just like 20-year-old girls who are just being silly. It was this little pocket vibrator. But, of course, during the course of the trials, my prosecution made a huge deal about this vibrator, saying that it was out in the open in this toiletry bag that I had in our shared bathroom and that Meredith was really bothered by it and trying to paint me as this sort of, like, obscene, sex obsessed, offensive individual, Um, the kind of woman who might perpetrate a sex crime. In other words, Um, the other uh, issue (laughs) that was brought up in the case was when the prosecution was trying to determine what the motive could possibly be for a young woman to orchestrate the rape and murder of another young woman, something that statistically never happens, they tried to come up with a bunch of different theories. They first were saying, well, maybe it had something to do with Halloween and, sat- and Satanism. And then they went on to say, well, maybe it was because Meredith disapproved of Amanda's sexual proclivities, or maybe it was because Amanda was dirty. The idea became that I was just a dirty person. And they they um, had this like one example of how Meredith had once showed me how to use the European toilet, which is shaped differently than a American toilet. um, And that involves scrubbing the inside of the toilet every time you use it, which was Mm -hmm. I was not used to coming from an American sort of standard toilet. And so they used that as an example uh, to say, well, here's this huge conflict between Amanda and Meredith, because Meredith had to show her how to use the toilet once. And that again is taking things that are yes, it is true. Meredith had to show me I, how to use the toilet. I also remember being confused because I think that the, like the it flushed from a pole string as opposed to like a little mm. handle. Anyway, it was it was taking these like small little like minute molehill things and turning them into mountains in order to justify having arrested me um, based on no evidence whatsoever.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like the the whole case really was that making little things into to really big things. You know, I've talked to someone I, I believe that you know Jeffrey Deskovic, um oh, yeah. that, that was also wrongfully accused and spent sixteen years in prison. Um uh, yeah. and and he talked about two things that I, I kind of want you to to talk about, and one is just in an interrogation with the way that it happens and being young. He was a little younger. I think he was like. 14 16. or 16. Yeah.
0: I think he was 16. It was horrible. His case is horrible.
1: Absolutely. And you know, he also, you know, had a, a false confession. A lot of people can't understand why somebody would, would falsely confess to something, which I think both of you guys have explained that really, really well. And then also something that was kind of parallel is he talked about how He went in because he thought he was helping the police. He thought that he was they told him that he was their kind of little helper is what he said, that he was going to be there just to help them solve the crime. And then it quickly got turned that, hey, he is actually the suspect. And then they arrested him and all that happened. Both of those things are parallel with you. There was a false confession and you thought you were helping the police. So talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up and also also hit Jeffrey's case, because it's I feel like this is really common in a lot of wrongful conviction cases, particularly in cases where people knew the victim or were at least uh, were either close to them or sort of close to them. And so it makes sense for an innocent person to put themselves at the disposal of the police, especially when they're young and inexperienced and have been raised like I was and like Jeffrey was, to really defer to authority, especially, especially in moments of crisis. They were the ones who were there to bring him answers and he didn't know what to do and he was trying to help. And in a very similar way, it was a huge level of crisis for me. It was a very scary and alarming and sudden trauma that had entered into my life. Like I came home the morning that we discovered that Meredith had been murdered thinking that I was just going to take a shower, get a change of clothes and go on a nice romantic weekend with my boyfriend. Like at no point did I think that some horrific, tragic thing was going to uproot my life in such a huge way. And even if I hadn't been wrongly accused, it would still be in a, a huge uprooting of everything that made me feel safe or secure. I was I no longer had a home to live in. So like suddenly I found myself six thousand miles away from home with nobody in my life that I was nor like used to being able to lean on when I was in a moment of crisis. my parents were six, thousand miles away my root like my friends were six thousand miles away I had I had only been in Italy for I think, five or six weeks at that point. So like I was really only just getting to know people, including my roommates at that point. And I didn't have anywhere to go. Like I had met my boyfriend five days before this crime occurred. So I was kind of suddenly just hanging out in, I was staying with my boyfriend of five days at his house while like trying to help the police. And the police very specifically told me that I was their most important witness. I was the most important person to their investigation. At least that's what they told me. And that's why that's how they explained why they were bringing me in for hours and hours of questioning every day following the discovery of this crime. As if like and of course, like having no experience of this whatsoever, being so young and so impressionable and scared and looking for direction. I just did as I was told. And even when I was exhausted and even when I felt like I was just repeating myself over and over and over again, I submitted myself to all of that questioning uh, with the understanding that I was helping and that that was that was my duty in that moment. And that was what I was supposed to do. I didn't really know what else to do. And I think when it comes to causes of wrongful convictions, False confessions are really where my sort of deep focus and interest and um, advocacy has been directed towards. I've since become a. have since ever since this has happened to me, I've done a bunch of research and I've I've talked to a ton of experts about all the different causes of wrongful convictions. And the one that sits closest to home for me is false confessions. 1 because they're way more prevalent than people think. 2 because people it's the one sort of cause of wrongful convictions that people who've never been through the experience can't quite wrap their heads around often. It's the hardest for people to like really empathize with and understand. And 3 because they're so impactful. Like I can't tell you the number of cases where there were just there was no evidence whatsoever. But because the person had been coerced into confessing, they were found guilty of the crime. And it's just it's astonishing to me that that can happen. But like it just goes to show how powerful a confession is in the mind of a jury, a public, a judge. People just don't think that an innocent person would ever implicate themselves in a crime that they didn't commit. When in fact, the research that thankfully has been ongoing for decades now has shown that it's innocent people are absolutely, absolutely vulnerable to being coerced into falsely confessing. And there are there are certain things that make some people more susceptible to others or, or than others. Uh, For instance, youth is a big issue. That was the biggest issue with me and Jeffrey. We were both very young. We were very impressionable. We were suggestible. We were deferring to authority um, in large part because that is our adolescent mindset. When in a crisis, do what the adults tell you to do. Um, But there's also other issues that come into play, like um, IQ can play a huge role uh, that can lead uh, people to be very suggestible. But also, for instance, I've heard that this is a really big issue with the military, where once again, people who are in in a lower position or a lower rank are often are deferring again to authority because they've been trained to trust people who are of higher rank than them. And they'll just do as they're told, even when it goes against their most basic common sense survival instincts. Um, There's really, really great research about this issue, um, particularly by professor Saul Kassin. Have you run into him at all? I have not. No. Oh man. He's amazing. He's the one who really opened my eyes about this issue and he had a book come out this year that I I need to remember what it's called. Anyway, I highly recommend his research. One of like the big um article that he wrote and like research article that he wrote that really stuck with me was The Psychology of False Confessions: How Innocence Puts Innocence at Risk. So in a sense, like I I N N O C-E-N-C-E, puts, in a sense, I-N-N-O-C-N, or Mm C-E-N-T-E-S, at risk, meaning that actually the very fact of an innocent person being innocent makes them vulnerable in a police interrogation scenario, especially, especially, especially when those interrogations are not at all recorded. And that happened to be the case with me, where every single day that i had been questioned leading up to my arrest all of that was at least audio recorded except for the very last day when they decided to interrogate me overnight suddenly they had no longer they no longer had the audio recording capabilities so there is no documented record of what happened in that interrogation room Mm -hmm. it's just my word against the police about what happened and they say that I voluntarily confessed and that it was of my free will and and I'm like, "No, no, 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 my friends. That is not what happened. So anyway, it's you we could talk for an hour about false confessions, uh-huh. but it is it is a huge problem. And it's one of the reasons why I'm a huge advocate for transparency in the interrogation room but also in the questioning process, because one of the ways that police and law enforcement get around some of the new regulations about transparency in the interrogation room is they'll say, well, I wasn't interrogating this person. They weren't a suspect yet. They were just a person of interest that I was questioning. And so the line between what rights you have about being of of your questioning being or your interrogation being recorded is really this like slippery slope at any point during your questioning where you're not entitled to an attorney and you're not entitled to any kind of recording. It can slip into an interrogation scenario when you should be entitled to an attorney and should be entitled to recording, but you as the person are not informed and have no idea what's going on. Hmm. So it's That's one of the other issues that I think is huge is the way that law enforcement finds loopholes even to regulations that are supposed to protect innocent people from being put in scenarios like that where they can be coerced into implicating themselves and others. Yeah. So many
1: wrongful convictions and so many false confessions that it's hard to keep them all straight. But I want to I want to make sure with, with Jeffrey, it was his classmate. So
0: Yeah, no, 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 you're right. You're right. It was his friend. And I remember they said that he was um, too attached to his friend or like he was like, you know, like he was like they they assumed that he was too impacted by her death. And so exactly. therefore he must be implicated. Yeah,
1: that was the crazy part with his too. You, you do remember exactly right there because he was the only one that like cried hysterically when they told told them that they died so that he must have been the one that killed his friend, because he's the only one that cared, which made no sense. But
0: I know it's it's really absurd how you can twist that, because, like, again, in Jeffrey's case, like he cared too much. He cried too much. Therefore, he must be guilty. And in my case, they were like, she didn't cry enough and she didn't care enough. And therefore, she must be guilty. And it's like, well, what is it?
1: Right. (laughs) Exactly.
0: What is guilty behavior? I, I again, it's like, That's one of the things that also a little bit bothers me about my case is the this idea that there is there is guilty behavior that somebody can like read from the sidelines like they can see from like a twinge in your eye or a a look that like you are guilty or not. Meanwhile, like there is certain behavior that is, you know, explicitly guilty, like, for instance, the person who committed Meredith's murder fled the country Mm -hmm. in the immediacy after the crime and took on a false identity. Like, okay, okay, that that's I would argue that that is probably guilty behavior. But crying or not crying or how much crying is not a measure of someone's guilt.
1: No, absolutely. And this may be a hard question to answer, because I don't think we ever truly know why these things blow up. But later on in the documentary you mentioned why you know people were so interested in your story for so long but just initially i know that you know the press came initially it kind of became big before you were even a suspect why do you think that is is it was that city just a sleepy city that things didn't happen very much or why why did it get so big so fast
0: yeah that's a really good question um and you're right that from the moment that, you know, the day that this crime was discovered, there were TV vans that were parked across the street that were recording the entire thing. And you did mention, you know, Perugia is a sleepy town. It um, It's home to two universities. So I guess not all that sleepy because there are a bunch of university students there. But there, it wasn't known for crime. It wasn't like, a big city like Naples where there's mafia or, you know, like it wasn't, it didn't have a history of that kind of uh, criminality. I think at most what the police were mostly dealing with was petty theft and, and drug trafficking largely around like marijuana that was being sold to students. And so the police <laughs> truly in Perugia, were not equipped to handle A crime of this nature because it just was very, very atypical, and I think beyond that, the fact that Meredith is this beautiful, you know, exchange student from Britain, um, I think that was something that really that people attached themselves to very early on, um, especially the fact that she was murdered in our own home, like it wasn't, you know, that she was walking around in a dark alley and something bad happened to her. Like she was doing everything right. Like she got walked home from her friend's house with a, with a friend and came into her home and it was only there that she was attacked and murdered. So I think the, just the horribleness of the crime and um, the unexpectedness of the crime and this typically safe, sleepy college town certainly uh, awoke a lot of people's attention um the fact that like very early on it was really unclear who could have done this i mean i remember those early days being extremely confused because what happened to meredith felt so like it just was so it was so horrible and i could not imagine anyone that i had ever encountered in perugia being capable of doing this like i remember the police really spending a lot of time asking me who had ever encountered meredith or who knew where we lived and who might have some kind of vendetta against her and i was like i can't think of anyone like what was so scary is it it felt so so random but like the randomness of the violence was also very scary and I started to wonder if there was some kind of serial killer on the loose who was like following women home and targeting like those were the kind of thoughts that were going on in my mind at the time and of course it didn't turn out to be a serial killer at all it turned out to be more of a sad story of a of a young man who had been abandoned by his parents in his youth and sort of grew up on the streets and while he had never murdered anyone before he certainly had broken into people's homes before he had certainly threatened people with knives before and so it was just this sort of tragic escalation of violence in the life of this sort of loner guy who didn't really have any support system in his life. And that's a whole story in and of itself of what led Rudy Gaudet to ultimately find himself in a situation where he raped and murdered a young woman. But it's, at the time, I think people really, really latched on to the fact that here's this beautiful young girl who was just living a dream and studying abroad and doing everything right and still, the most horrible thing, everyone's nightmare, happened to her, and I think people were outraged internationally.
1: Absolutely, and it, it's easy to to see later on why people continued to to be interested, but it, it makes sense what what you're saying there in in the initial phases as well. Later on, you know, in the documentary, another one of your your good. I guess turn of phrases to kind of talk about why people are so interested. And it was that you were either a psychopath in sheep's clothing or you were them. That's scary both ways. Where we're, we're watching somebody who's just playing the game really, really well, or they are a part of a complete nightmare, which is exactly what happened. So people were were watching to to see that. I, I guess talk a little bit about just the the aspect of just. Being like everyone else and this type of thing happening, um, because that I mean, that's that's what drew everyone in. I think that's what, uh, you know, what created the international frenzy that that happened.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like the early interest in the case was certainly around Meredith and how what had happened to her was so horrible. And she had everything she had everything going for her in her life. And it was just horrible what happened to her. And then, of course, after my arrest and as the case progressed, as the investigation progressed and a lot of controversy started to arise over the investigation and how it was being conducted. And but also about, you know, public interest in this like girl next door gone wild or mad um, who orchestrated a sex, you know, a, a sex orgy death thing like death party. Um, that sort of sparked the world's imagination as well. And it, and it veered the what should have been the focus of the case, which was what actually the evidence of what had happened to Meredith say about what happened. Um, and so, yeah, you're right that when I talk about what happened to me, I mean, it really does come down to that. Either I am a complete psychopath so a 20-year-old psychopath who is absolutely capable of manipulating every single person around her um to to rape and murder people for her to to you know lead investigations astray to to like manipulate the media and their examination of the case like either i'm that psychopath or i'm just a person and and I'm just a kid who like was in the wrong place at the wrong time and just happened to get like brought into this investigation against my will by detectives who had a bad first instinct and didn't want to admit that they were wrong. And it really I mean, what's fascinating to me is like how how long it, this question has persisted like but maybe really like i think people are really titillated by the idea of uh, a young female girl next door psychopath like i think just the idea of that was so titillating to people that they didn't really want to let it go even for lack of evidence but you know it it really does come down to that question either i was this grand criminal mastermind Or, I'm just a kid, and I'm just like you. And everything that was happening to me was completely out of my control. And I think that that version of the story is more true but less compelling because it is scary to people. The idea that they could be that vulnerable for no reason whatsoever that they could be just in the wrong place at the wrong time. One day their friend gets murdered and suddenly they're the one accused and they can't defend themselves. And all of a sudden, all these like media stories are happening to them and and they're in prison and they get convicted and they're facing decades in prison. Like this idea is really, really scary. And it speaks to the fragility of our systems and of our own psychology even. Like, it's not just the system that failed me. It was the people who were who were entrusted with the power to enforce this system, these institutions that failed me. And a lot of that ha- came down to just human frailty and cognitive bias and psychological weakness and ego. And I think people are really disturbed by the idea that Something so important and so life altering could go so horribly wrong.
1: That's that's powerful for sure. And I want to ask the beginning the the police felt this pressure to find the person, you know, they had a press conference that, you know, we, we felt pressure that, to finally find somebody. And we did. We found the person. Of course, they were, were speaking of, of you. But later on, it, it was in the news for, for so long. It could go either way. The police don't want to be wrong. So they just dug in and dug in. Or there's so many people that are now interested that eventually they had to get it right. So do you think that the, I guess, the the frenzy of it all, do you think at the end helped or hurt your, your eventual release?
0: I mean, I think that the... The final verdict from the Supreme Court argued that the public pressure put on the police ultimately led them to make a lot of decisions that were, you know, not very objective, that were the result of, you know, pressure and um, and a sense of haste, a sense of urgency. Um, And I do believe that that absolutely impacted them. Um, But I also think that Again, transparency is really important and we should and I think a large reason why I didn't just, you know, my case didn't just get swept under the rug like so many other wrongful conviction cases is because there was like there were a fair number of journalists out there who were doing the job of a journalist, which is to hold, you know, authorities and institutions accountable And I think a lot of people, a lot of journalists went into this case thinking, ooh, like, here's a really good, you know, this is going to sell really well. It's a really scandalous story. Um, Let's let's get into all the evidence and just churn that out. And eventually some journalists like were showing up in the courtroom going, wait a second, we were promised all of this evidence. Where is it? (laughs) <laughs> Where is all this evidence that we were promised over these last, you know, several months? I mean, I was in prison for a year before my trial officially started. So, a year of misinformation campaign that was being put out in the media by leaked by the prosecution and by the police department. And finally, the journalists show up and start hearing the witnesses and start hearing the experts and going, wait a second. I thought this was cut and dry. I thought we had like, what's going on here? And suddenly that became a new story of like, we were kind of lied to and what is the truth? And that ultimately led to people asking some really important questions that needed to be asked. What's unfortunate is that anyone should have to rely on some outside Institution like journalism in order to have faith in the institution of the criminal justice system like we need to have a criminal justice system that incentivizes law enforcement professionals to do their job and to to not just try to save face. And I think that currently the incentive structures both in Italy and also in the U.S. here um, don't often incentivize that. I think that people are rated on how well they're able to obtain convictions and they are not rewarded for releasing a suspect because there isn't enough evidence, you know? Um, And I think that that's really unfortunate. Um, There is, there's this still this um, perspective, uh, this adversarial perspective between like the defense and the prosecution instead of viewing it, this as a, effort to find out what the truth is and to do the right thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's only 75 million other questions that could be asked, but we've got, I want to move (laughs) into, uh, I guess, getting you, you home from all this. So, you know, you, you were acquitted by the, uh, Supreme court. You, well, lots of different things there, but you, you were able to come, come home. Now you had all of this fame that you had nothing to, to do with, um, because of a terrible thing that happened. You weren't even really sure of just how much fame had had been created because, of course, you were in prison. You didn't really know what was happening. Um, So I just wonder, once you got back, how were you able to adjust? And then also, what was your, I guess, relationship to this newfound fame that was for something that uh, wasn't all that, that great to be famous for?
0: Yeah, that's the big now what question that I've been grappling with for my entire adult life. Um because you're right. Um here I am talking to you about the worst experience of my life and that's the only reason <laughs> you would reach out to talk to me unless you're like a huge fan of my podcast or my writing. Um but uh yeah, no, my I am defined not just by the worst experience of my life, but also the worst experience of Meredith's life. I'm defined by a crime that I had nothing to do with. And I feel like the probability of me accomplishing anything in my life that will come to define me more than that is very unlikely. Um, I... I like to say I'd have to cure cancer on the moon in order to be more well known for that than being accused of being the girl accused of murder, and that's a really, really tough spot to be in. Um, it it's meant that I've had to grapple with my identity being usurped and um, and rewritten by strangers who were incentivized to profit off of the most scandalous version of the story. Um, It's meant that I have felt very, very alienated from other people um, because my relationship with um, like public personas or with even just news in general is very, very much informed by the my experience of misinformation and um and so it's been a struggle it's been a struggle to really figure out what my role could possibly be in this world that for you know a good decade locked me away or or imprisoned me in a story not of my own making and <laughs> um, I think one of the ways that I've grappled with that is really just taking stock of how absolutely lucky I am. Because if you really think about it, I absolutely could have been murdered just as much. Like, if I had been home that night, I also would have been murdered. And it was just by a lucky fluke that I met this really sweet Italian guy five days before Rudy Gaudet broke into my home and I was spending the night at his house. Like that's, that's what happened. Like I just got lucky. And I also got lucky that I only spent four years in prison and eight years on trial compared to, you know, Jeffrey or a lot of other wrongfully convicted people who spend decades in prison for crimes they didn't commit and so here I am really like first of all taking stock of how lucky I am and also doing what I can to understand how this heck experience hasn't just taken things from me but has given things to me and trying to translate those gifts From challenge into gifts that I can give others so one of those gifts could be perspective like that's one of the biggest ones is I before this happened to me I did not give the criminal justice system a second thought I absolutely just assumed that bad people go to prison and good people don't and the system works and it's very cut and dry and I was wrong I was so, so wrong. And I have since learned so much, not just about the criminal justice system, but about human nature and psychology and different amazing ideas ha- that people have to solve these problems. And I really do feel so grateful and for that perspective and for the opportunity to share that perspective with others, particularly because I recognize myself to be a kind of uncommon wrongfully convicted person. When you walk into a room, like if you were to gather a hundred wrongfully convicted people together in a room, only 10 of them might be women. The vast majority of them are men. And the vast majority of them are not, you know, little middle class white girls from the suburbs of Seattle like i i stand out as someone who is not the typical victim of this kind of tragedy and what that has allowed me to do is to really be a bridge of understanding between certain strata of society who like me never thought they had to think about it Um, very, it's very typical that I'll share my story and people will go, oh my God, like until this happened to you, like, yeah, you know, you hear stories about and just whatever, but like, there's always this feeling that it could happen to someone else. And suddenly when they hear it from me, they go, oh my God, I finally realized that this could happen to me. It could happen to someone I care about that. This could happen to not just people who find themselves on the very lower, lower, you know, strata of society or whatever it may be. And, and it's true, not to say that you shouldn't care about people who are already getting screwed over by the system, because they happen to be more vulnerable. But I think that people just naturally find themselves more interested in things that can Also reach them and touch them, and so they suddenly become more interested in the area of criminal justice and wrongful convictions in general. And so I think that's a good thing.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, when I've listened to you on so many other podcasts, I've you—you've had to kind of just quickly insert this Labyrinths podcast, and because there's so much to cover, I've almost made that happen now today too. <laughs> um, but I want you to talk about the Labyrinths podcast. What made you decide to start it? What it's about? I've enjoyed the the most recent series, the Blood Money series. So I want you oh, to thank you. just talk about it. You're, the floor is yours. Take as long as you want. You don't have to just quickly interject that you have a podcast.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. Um, so my husband and I, um, Christopher Robinson is my husband. We host and produce a podcast called Labyrinths. The idea is that at any point in our lives all of us at some point feel like we are lost or we are overwhelmed by a situation and we don't know the way out and it's really an examination it's an opportunity to examine really complicated topics that are often in gray areas it's unclear what's right or wrong or where to go or how to how to get through it or how to process it and this arose because a lot of people have reached out to me ever since I've gone through this very, very public traumatic event to say that they also are going through a less public, but potentially equally or more traumatic event, and they feel like I can understand them. And so I really have felt like, especially with Labyrinths, my job has been to listen empathetically to people's really, really compelling stories of their own experiences of being lost or else to tackle or tackle really um, uh, subjects that there's still some sort of ambiguity about how we should feel about it. Like we did a big series about psychedelics. We did a big series about infertility. And most recently, we did a really big series about the true crime genre that we called Blood Money. Um, I believe it's is it a seven part series, I believe? Anyway, we go into we do the history. We go back to the very first examples of true crime as entertainment um back, you know, back when they were still having people pay money to visit the, you know, crime scenes of of big, you know, cele- celebrated murders, notorious murders. Um, all the way up to today where we're seeing this huge um, conversation arising around the ethics of true crime and the ethics of um, people taking true crime stories and using them as source material for lightly fictionalized entertainment. And I've, having been the uh, subject of many of these different versions of true crime i had a lot of i had a lot to say about it but i also was really interested in what other people had to say about it so it's really an examination of the history and the ongoing evolution of the ethics around the examination and turning into content especially entertainment content of other people's worst moments and worst tragedies So yeah, I I highly recommend it. We worked really hard on it and we're really proud of it.
1: I highly recommend it too. Yeah. So how how can people find it? It's pretty easy to find podcasts, but how can people Mm -hmm. find it?
0: Yeah. So um, if you type in Labyrinths, Getting Lost with Amanda Knox, you can find it anywhere that you um, subscribe to podcasts. You can also find it on my website, knoxrobinson.com. And of course, if you follow me on Instagram or Twitter, so on Twitter at Amanda Knox and on Instagram at aMama Knox, you can find links to all of all the stuff that I do.
1: My, my final question is your least favorite one that I I know (sighs) that you don't necessarily like, and that's, you, you don't like to talk about, you know, your four year, five year plan, but what do you hope the future holds you've, you've done so much, you've gotten, married. I know you have a daughter. I believe that you have a, a son on the way. So congratulations I on every,
0: everything. Ah, you've done your homework, Jackson. Well, well done. Know, <laughs> well,
1: you know, it's only taken a year to get you on. Not to... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I have, but uh, yeah. So congratulations on all that. But then also, um, what do you, what do you hope that the future holds for you?
0: You know what? Um, I feel like I am in a really, really good place right now. Um, I'm loving being a mom. I'm really, really loving it. I'm loving having my family. In fact, my, my daughter is waving at me right now through the window <laughs> of my vocal booth. Mm. Um, and I, so I'm enjoying being on that journey and really learning and growing alongside her, alongside my family. Um, at the same time, I'm also working on a, a lot of really cool things that I wish I could tell you about, but they allow me to take what I've learned from my experience and translate them into um, opportunities for uh, for growth, not just for myself, but for others. And I've been doing a lot of meditating and spending a lot of time really thinking about um, just how to live a happy, fulfilled life. And I have a lot of ideas about that that I'm really eager to share with people in the very near future, hopefully. So, um, keep stay tuned is what I'll say. Stay tuned. Cause I have a lot of things in the works.
1: Stay tuned for sure. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you so much for being so persistent as well. Like I, you were always so incredibly respectful yeah. and, um, and so I'm finally, I'm glad we finally found the time.
1: <laughs> I am too. Thank you. So that was Amanda Knox. What a powerful story. I, you know, like I mentioned in the beginning, it took a year to to get her on. It was somebody that I've wanted to talk to for, for so long. I've read her book. I've listened to her in countless podcasts. I mean, she's been on Joe Rogan. She's been on Burt Kreischer's podcast. She's been on... Oh, just uh, every podcast imaginable, I, I, th- <laughs> I think. I don't know how she finds the time. So for her to agree to be on this podcast was just so special. So happy to speak with her. And it's so easy to see why people uh, are so drawn to her now. You know, I think that this whole story, you know, we talk so much about why people were so interested in the story when it comes to just the craziness of, you know, the intro that she was either a psychopath playing the best game ever and fooling everyone, or she is just like everyone else and was at the wrong place at the wrong time and suffered the consequences of some uh, some really bad investigations from a police force that was under pressure to solve this and, and went in the wrong way about it. And she spent four years in prison because of it. I, yeah, I'm just so honored to, to speak with her. She's got so many amazing things to, to say. She's giving back and, and helping others that have been wrongfully convicted. She's got so much other things going when it comes to the podcast. I highly recommend you check out Labyrinths. I really do enjoy it. The Blood Money series is, is a really interesting look at true crime and why people are so interested in it. Some people that are listening to this one may simply be listening because they're into the true crime genre. This is not a true crime podcast. I've had other people on, you know, in, in that world. Uh, the person who caught the Green River Killer, the person who defended the Oklahoma City bomber, those type of people. But, uh, you know, I, I talk to people from, from all walks of life. Everyone from Olympic gold medalists to the host of the newlywed game from the 1960s to the 2000s, and, and everyone in between Officer Clements, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. So many people. Hope you'll check out other weeks. I Again, I want to thank Amanda for being here. It was so worth the wait. So happy that she came on. Go check her out. Go check out Labyrinth's podcast. Check out her social media. All the links will be in the show notes. Um, it's either Amanda Knox or a Mama Knox, and uh, I want to congratulate her again for the upcoming uh, birth of her son. I know that's uh, an awesome, awesome thing. She talked just about how excited she is about motherhood. She's already got a, a daughter, and just adding to uh, adding to the to group is always uh, it's always fun. So. Thanks so much, for Amanda, uh, for being here, and uh, thank you for, for joining me. Go check out other episodes, so many other amazing people on. If you like this podcast, you like this episode, go give it a five-star review on Apple and on Spotify. Go leave a written review on Apple, even more amazing. Follow us on Instagram, Not Enough in Podcast. appreciate that very much. But if you do nothing else, come back next week. Another amazing guest. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.